You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Just want to welcome you guys again this morning and especially just acknowledge the dads in the room. Happy Father's Day to you if you're a father in this room. You know, somebody said to me uh, at some point that the voice of a father becomes the inner voice of a child. I don't know how true it is. I believe it to be in part true. Uh, But if it's true, that's surely a heavy burden, right? And who can bear it? Certainly, I know that I don't want necessarily for my voice to be the dominant inner voice of my children, right? And yet, I kind of want to say to you guys this morning, to all the fathers in the room, firstly, that the Lord sees you, that each time that you represent the good and perfect voice of your Father in heaven to your children, He sees you and He celebrates over you the kingdom work that you are doing in your children. But way more importantly than that, I want you to hear this morning, dads, that every time that you fail to do that, every time that your voice does not reflect the perfect voice of the Father in heaven, that because of Jesus, you are perfectly covered, perfectly spotless, perfectly forgiven, and your children, in all the ways that you will fail them, their Father in heaven never will, and you have that assurance from him. So happy Father's Day to you, and to each of you this morning who are grieving either the father you didn't have, the father that you've lost, the father that you wish you were, I also just want to offer you the comfort this morning before we get started that on this Father's Day, your Father in heaven looks on you with the light and offers himself to you perfectly to be your great comforter. And I pray that this morning, as we look at him together, that we would each enter into that rest, okay? You know, I remember a story that a good friend of mine up in Chicago told me. He said that uh, when he was nine or ten years old, that his dad took him to a sporting event of some kind. And that uh, when they were in the bathroom at this venue, that he did or said something embarrassing to his father. And his father responded to his buddies, whose kid is this? Surely not my kid. Harmless enough, right? But somehow these words went directly into the heart of my friend. And for 50 years, these words stayed with him all these other parts of his life indicating to him that he's just one misstep away from being disowned or unselected, deselected by the people who love him. And so 40-ish years later, 50-something years old, seeking to resolve this distress within him, he goes to his father to make peace over this sentence that was spoken all those years ago and understandably his dad had no recollection that he'd ever said any such thing, right? You see, this is the nature of our relationship to our fathers, our relationship with one another, that we were created to desire belonging. You see, we were created as an outflow, as an overflow of the love that eternally existed between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Forever, they have loved one another perfectly. They have experienced perfect belonging forever. And when you and I were created, we were placed on this earth, created in the image of God, is what is written in Genesis, that we were made in his image, both male and female. We were made in his image. And this means not just to look like him, but to participate with him in the ways that he participates with himself, that we, 
as created beings reflecting the image of God would dwell with him and enjoy him forever. A sense of true belonging, right? We were made for this, and it's why we yearn for it. And it's why when these things are broken in our human relationships, it's why we feel them so deeply. And it's why also we need our Father in heaven so much to be that for us because it's what he designed us to need. And so if you're experiencing that more, this, that this morning, if you're needing that this morning, just know that you're joining me in needing that this morning, that you're joining the world in needing that this morning. And this morning, I have named today's sermon, Did I Not Choose You? These are the final words of Jesus in this interaction. And I'm praying that as we work our way through it, that we are going to find peace and comfort in the truth that our God from eternity past looked upon you and chose proactively to set his care and affection and saving grace upon you, chose to adopt you very specifically. Now, over, this is kind of the end cap, the third message in a series of sermons, three sermons, to kind of walk us through the bread miracle, right? I told you guys that we were going to preach it in three segments. That segment one, we were going to look at the miracle itself. Segment two, we were going to look at the response of the crowd. And segment three today, we're going to look at the response of the disciples. And in segment one, looking at the miracle, when Jesus was brought the bread and the fish and he multiplied it to feed the 5,000 plus the women and children, who ate? Who did he multiply the loaves and the fish for? Everybody, right? Everybody ate. The whole crowd ate. And in the same way, just as the sun shines on the skin of all people on earth today, and just as a cool breeze passes over to alleviate the warmth on that same skin for all people today, our God stands ready to pour out his common grace on all men. He is extending his hand of care and invitation and love to the whole earth. But then last week, we saw a smaller group, a subgroup of that crowd hop on boats and chase him to Capernaum in order that they might ask him for more. And last week, we looked at his inter interaction with that group, and he said some really hard things to them. In fact, this morning's message, when we look at the response of the disciples, begins with, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So let's stop and remember what he said. He said really four things last week to the crowd. The first thing that he said is that all who the Father give to me will come to me. That's the first thing Jesus said. The second thing he said is that all who come to him, he will never cast out. In fact, it is the will of the Father that he should not lose a one that he has given to him. The third thing he said is that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. And the fourth thing that he said is that this new life that you are invited into comes by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that you must receive him, receive his broken body and his shed blood to, be, enter, to enter into eternal life. These were, these, these were the four teachings of last week. And as Jesus taught this to the crowd, we open up this morning with the response of the crowd where they say, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
And so we open our passage this morning with the, with the, the visceral response of the disciples as Jesus is saying, my Father gives you to me, and when he does, you will come. And when you come, I will not cast you out, but you can't come unless he carries you to me. And when he carries you to me, this new life comes from eating my body and drinking my, or eating my body and, and drinking my blood. Their response is, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And this is the right question, right? Like, this is a hard saying. I preached it last week. It's in many ways, a miracle of the Lord that as I quote this to you, to Mercy's Door, that you guys don't pick up and walk out of the room just like the crowds did, right? The, the answer to who can listen to this, Jesus had just answered. Those who the Father has given to me. See, those ones will come to me. Those ones will hear. My sheep know my voice is what Jesus is showing us here. But they're asking the right question. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to it? But he's answered. The ones who can listen to it are the ones who are mine. And the ones who are not mine cannot. They cannot bear to listen to it. In fact, knowing in himself that his disciples are grumbling about this, he says to them, do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And this sounds in a lot of ways probably to the crowd like a rhetorical question or like a theoretical question or like a hypothetical question in some way, a theological question. But we know the end of the story, right? The Son of Man is going to ascend to the place he was before. And so Jesus is drawing attention here in response to their, to their offense at what he is saying. What if you were to see me ascend to where I was before? Well, where was he before? Well, he just told them that. He said, I am the bread of life that the Father has sent from heaven. From heaven. He said, what if you saw me ascend to heaven? Would you still be offended? What if I were to return to the place that I belong, to the place that I came from? Would you still be offended? Now, the answer to that question is twofold, and we'll get to that. But our author opened up this passage by teaching us about who Jesus is and where he came from, right? He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him, everything was made that was made, and without him was not anything made that was made. That in him is life, and this life is the light of men, that the light shines in the darkness, that the darkness has not overcome it. This Jesus says, what if you saw me ascend to that place? Would you still be offended when I say to you, that it is I, it is by my sovereign hand, by, it's by my sovereign will, that it is, that is by the decision, the active pursuit of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that you become mine? He says that to take offense at this is to lose sight of exactly who he is and where he's come from. And when he talks about seeing the Son of Man ascend, we also need to understand that this was not hypothetical, that he in fact would ascend before a great cloud of witnesses to the place from which he came. And then he would have it documented in several places for us to then behold it, that the Spirit might give us the faith to believe it and to see it for ourselves. So setting up for us this morning that all of this is this next sentence, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. So seeing the crowd's offense that he has just claimed, that all those who the Father gives him will come, 
and that unless the Father gives you to him, you won't come. He doubles down and he says again, it is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. No help at all. So we've seen him build a case, right? And I'm repeating it intentionally that we would see the flow out of Jesus' own mouth. He taught it in this order on purpose. All those who the Father gives to the Son will come to him. All those who come to him, I will never cast out. I won't lose a one. Unless the Father draws you, you can't come. And if you come, you will receive me, my blood and my body, and that will be your salvation. And it is the Spirit who gives this life, capital S, the Holy Spirit, who gives this life. The flesh is no help at all. So this offense at this word picture that he used last week or or earlier in the teaching when he says that you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, he has now clarified that he is talking about a life that is given in the Spirit, baptism by the Spirit, that you would actually receive into yourself, receive upon yourself the blood and the body of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. Because he had said he's the bread of life and you've got to eat it. And then he says it's the Spirit who gives that life. So how do you take in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit is what Jesus is saying here. But there are some of you, he says, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So again, he really... He really doubles down here. This is why I told you. No one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Now, this is twice now in the same teaching that Jesus has said that you can't, that no one can come to him. And when we talk about this word can, we're talking about both ability and permission, right? The first time he talks about your ability, he says no one can come to me unless the Father drags him or carries him upon his own back to me, right? So you don't have the ability, like a man with no legs, you can't, you don't have the ability to walk to me, to pursue me, I pursue you. And here he's dealing with this word can in terms of permission. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So he is saying that in our dead state, in our sinful state, that nothing in us is able in either our ability or the permission of God to approach Jesus, that our ability to come to Jesus is fully in the hands of God. It is a gift of God given to us. In fact, he says that very clearly last week when he says, this is a gift of eternal life that the Son of Man will give to you, will give to you. This is why I told you. In fact, it says in in, in verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And when we read from the beginning, when John writes it, we know what he means when he says from the beginning because he's clarified what he means when he says from the beginning. We've already done it. The beginning, beginning, he knew. Like the beginning, Jesus knew who would believe and who would not And Jesus knew who would betray him. And so he gives us this narrowing focus to understand his teaching here, that it is going to be God alone who brings people from death into life in order that they might live forever and abundantly with Jesus Christ. And this is of deep offense 
And so verse 66 is the response. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So church, this morning, we've got to see that the crowd was big until Jesus taught this. And once Jesus teaches this, the crowd gets small. And it's, when he sa- it's, it's, not, it's not when he says that you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this. In fact, when it was a list of rules, when you talk about Old Testament law, there were a whole bunch of people who thought, all right, I've got this. But once he says, there's nothing that you can do, the Lord must do it, suddenly the crowd's thin. Suddenly it's very offensive to tell me that my faith is not a gift that I give to you, but my faith is a gift that you give to me. And so this is kind of overlapping with last week, but Jesus is kind of doing work here to dismantle this idea that the crowds are coming to him, demanding of him that if you do this for us, remember last week they were demanding the bread, make it rain, some bread for us, and we'll believe. Suggesting to him that our faith is a gift that we give to him. And when he turns that on his head and he says, oh no, Your faith is a gift that I give to you. The crowd leaves. They want nothing to do with that. And there are a great number of people today in this community, perhaps in this church, certainly all across America, who are very willing to build huge crowds around a Jesus that they invented, a Jesus that they give their faith to, a Jesus who they tell him what they want and they tell him what their will is and they tell him what he needs to do to be a good Jesus and they say, and in return, if you do all of the things that I expect of you and you bow to my will, I'll give you the gift of my allegiance, of my faith. I'll follow you as long as I find you to be somebody who listens to me. And so you've got 50 million Jesuses being worshipped in this country, but only one of them is the real Jesus, and he won't allow himself to be characterized by his followers. He says, oh no, I tell you who I am, and I'm the bread of life. And this is sobering, but it's important, because it's showing the specificity of the calling of Jesus on your life and on mine. See, I don't want to sow any seeds of doubt in the believers, If you belong to Christ, I mean, you belong to, he has made this so clear. He has offered you this comfort that all those who are given to him by the Father are secure in his hand. He will not lose a one. And that's your comfort this morning. But that comfort is difficult to receive, we preached last week, if we don't really understand how it came to be that we became his. Because if we earned it, we can lose it. If it's something about us, that thing can become untrue. And then will he kick us out, right? So he's starting to preach to us an understanding about how it is that we come to become his, that we come to be his. And it's exclusive. It's highly exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth of the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, no one comes to me except by the Father. He says, no one comes to the Father or to me except by the power of the Spirit. He has said, it is all on our side of things on God's side of things, and that's highly exclusive. There are not multiple pathways to Jesus. There's not multiple pathways to eternity, to eternal life. He says there's one, 
And that's something we definitely have in common with the hearers in this passage here is we are living in a day and an age where the most offensive thing that you can say is that there is one exclusive way to truth, that there's only one truth, that there's only one way, that there's only one life, that there's only one Jesus, and that we don't define him. And the reason why we have this in common with all generations before us is because it was the original sin that we would say to God, I reject you as God, and I claim for myself the throne. I decide what's best for me. And the minute that we do that, now God is reduced to useful. We worship him only insofar as he serves our will. But Jesus said, I've come to do the will of my Father who sent me. And when he says that he's going to send the Spirit on our behalf, he says the Spirit is going to perfectly do the will of me. And we were designed to enter into this unity this union with Christ by which we would experience true belonging, true adoption, true identity-changing, identity-conforming belonging that we're all seeking after. But it's exclusive, and it's exclusive in the best way. You see, you're not going to go to like a bar and fight for every woman in there, right? But somebody makes a pass on your girl and you're ready to scrap, right? There's a particular love that is set upon those who belong to you. A particular love, right? And at Mercy's Door, we believe that love is a verb, right? That love is a choice because it's exemplified and personified for us in Jesus Christ, who said himself that greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, right? Love is an active verb, and the way that, that, that God has loved us, has made us his own, has given us a new identity in Christ, has been a specific love where he pursued you specifically, where he brought you into new life, where, yes, he fed the, ma- the multitudes, everyone eats, but not everybody received eternal life. Not everyone was given permission and ability by the Father to come to Jesus. In fact, the vast majority of them would ditch him right here and right now at the very suggestion that that's the way it works. So after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus says to the 12, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, this response is a response of joyful surrender. As Jesus has just said in no uncertain terms, everyone who the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will not let them go. And here Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know you're the Holy One of God. If we believe this, then we're in the camp that you just said will come to you and that you'll never let us go. To whom shall we go? We can't escape this. We can't run away from this. We're yours. Where else, where else can we go? It's a joyful surrender. 
And I gave an example last week of adoption. It's this idea that, like, you can run, but you can't hide. You belong to him now. And so even in your running, there's a difference. Because when your kid, it's like when you go to the park, right? Like, when you take your kids to the park, you're not watching like a hawk everybody else's kids. You know, they can fall. But your kid, they can run. But they can't hide. You're going you're to make sure that they're all right, right? He's recognizing to whom he belongs. But then Jesus answers them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I'm going to preach this in two parts. First, the, the beginning. Did I not choose you, the twelve? This, this interaction between Peter and the disciples and Jesus starts with Jesus asking a question. Are you going to go too? Peter says, where are we going to go? And Jesus answers, did I not choose you? Did I, did I not choose you? And church, I just wonder whether or not we really let ourselves believe this to the point that it's a comfort for us. Because all of us, I think, will believe it to the point that it's a discomfort for us. Having a God who chooses is super uncomfortable. Because if he's in control, then I'm not. And that's hard in, like, everything, right? Like, think about half of your arguments with your spouses, right? You want, we want to be in control. When we start yielding to the Lord that he is in sovereign control over matters like salvation, of our standing with him, it's not hard for us to feel uncomfortable about that. But will we believe it deeply enough that we are comforted by it? Because if it's still making you uncomfortable, it's because it's the struggle and it's the resistance between a child and his father for control, right? Like, it's, it's I want to be able to say that I had a say in this, you know? I, I don't want to uh, put, air my wife's stuff out there. Sarah, is it okay? Give me a nod. Yeah. But she says, she says to me, you know, uh, several, maybe a year or two ago, Pastor Michael was preaching a message, and he goes, he tells us the story about this, like, uh, I don't know what he was, like a triathlon runner, and he had a uh, quadriplegic or paraplegic son who he would carry on his back as he ran marathons and things like that, and this kid is decorated with all of the medals that his, and awards that his father won, and Sarah, just being a moment of vulnerability and honesty, says to me and to the rest of our gospel community, I love that for that kid, and I hate it for me. I don't want to be carried across the finish line. I don't want that. I want to be the one who ran the race. I want to be the one who earned it. And the truth is that she just put words for the group to what we all naturally do with God. Thank you, but no thank you. Where we will not allow ourselves to be comforted by it because it would mean surrender that says that I don't earn what you give freely. Even worse, I can't earn what you give freely. It would require an honesty in us about our weakness, our frailty, our sin, our undeservedness, that God doesn't owe us anything, that everything that he's given us is grace alone. That's tough until it's comfort. And here the disciples are beginning to enter into comfort as they resign themselves to whom else shall we go? You alone 
have the words of eternal life. And so it is through death to self that we find new life in him. And as long as we are clinging to our works, to our good deeds, to our worthiness, to something about us that makes us very lovable and adoptable, we just find ourselves in this resistance with God. We find it very offensive that he's a God who chooses. But the truth is, is that if the choices of God, if the salvation of God depended on you, that is a terrifying prospect. See, as long as that rests in the hands of God, there's hope. But if it rests upon you, good night. And so he says it directly. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You see here on the back half of what he's saying, it's important that we see what Jesus didn't say first. He did not say, did I not choose you, the eleven, for one of you is a devil. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. And John, so struck by this, includes it again. He spoke of Judas, for he, one of the twelve, he doubles down, was going to betray him. And so we need to ask the question, we're being begged to ask the question, why would Jesus choose his betrayer to be one of the twelve? Why would Jesus choose his betrayer to be one of the twelve? He certainly wasn't caught off guard. He just just said, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So we've got to ask, why did Jesus choose his betrayer to be one of the twelve? And I have two answers for you this morning. One of them, Jesus gives himself twice in this book. In John 13, 18, I'll read it to you. Jesus speaking to his disciples on the night that he is washing their feet before he is betrayed, he says to them, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, but I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send the Holy Spirit, receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So again, just reading this, the one response to this, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So he quotes for us there Psalm 41.9. If you guys want to write it down and reference it later. And quoting from the mouth of David here, this prophecy that he who ate my bread will raise his heel against me. He says, the reason why I chose my betrayer to be one of the 12 is in order that scripture would be fulfilled. He says this again in his high priestly prayer. This is in John 17, verse 12. I'll read that to you also. 
praying to God the Father. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So number one, why did Jesus choose his betrayer to be one of the twelve? That the scripture might be fulfilled. But the scriptures, who he has been showing us, I mean, you try to stay with the track. This is why we preached it in three segments, right? The scriptures are thousands of years old, and Jesus is showing himself to be the God of the Exodus, the God of the Old Testament, the God of eternity, that he is the God from the beginning, right? And so when he now on the earth fulfills scripture written eras before he walked the earth, he is showing us something. But he's also showing a power, a sovereign power that we must come to grips with when it comes to Jesus, if he has the ability to choose when he'd come into the world, who his crowd would be, which 12 he would set his hand upon and bring into new life, who he would choose to be his betrayer, if, if he is sovereignly ordaining all of it, then certainly he has the sovereign ability to choose all things. So that's reason number one. But number two is very comforting. Because as much as we are comforted that we, are a, that we worship a Jesus who is so sovereign and so in control of these things that, he is, that he's able to carry out Old Testament prophecy as he walks on this earth, that he's able to fulfill the promises of Old Testament scripture, that he is able to look across the arc of redemptive history from creation to the fall through the laws and the prophets and the priests and the judge and bring it all to fruition in his own life, death, and resurrection. If he's able to do that, we can be encouraged that Jesus Christ Christ is the promise keeper. He's the anointed one. He's the sent one of God. He's the one on whom all things rested in the Old Testament. He's bringing them to pass. Amazing. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that he would show us that no evil thing, no bad thing that happens in this life is somehow ever catching him off guard that they are all being used to carry out his good purposes. Now listen, church, we know this because if a Roman cross can be an instrument of life, then certainly all evil things can be and are being used by God to bring about his good purposes in redemptive history, right? Like the, the truth is, is that every evil thing, including the worst thing that you can imagine, a betrayal with a kiss by an inner circle friend is being used to bring about the redemptive history, uh, plan, history plan of God, right? So we have, to, we have to see it. We have to see it that Jesus foreknew and foreordained that his betrayer would be among the twelve in order that he be betrayed at the right hour, in order that he would be sentenced to die at a cross, in order that he would go into a grave, in order that he would rise from that grave, in order that he would ascend to the right hand of the Father, in order that he would redeem the church. He did it for you. All of those choices that he made were him choosing you. It was him carrying out the plan of God to ransom a remnant for himself to build a church as a beautiful tapestry of worship to the Son. This is his work. It is his choosing. It is his design. It is his method. It is by his power. And we are recipients. We're recipients.
And that means that all of the evil that has come to pass in your life and all of the evil that you have committed in this life has never at any point fallen outside the fold of the eternal plan of God. It means that your sin was written in. He already knew and he factored it in and he carries out his good purposes through it and despite it. In fact, we come to experience him and his glory and his riches of his mercy in unique ways on account of the fact that he folds in the sin and the evil of humankind, of this world. And this is meant to be a comfort because sometimes it's you. Guys, I mean, some of you guys are carrying around a guilt over the things that you yourselves have done, the secret and dark sins of your own life, the things that you can't forgive yourself for, the things that you think you've screwed up so badly that surely you've thrown things off the course of the good plans of God. And I'm saying to you, the Lord saw it, knew it, and factored it in, and he is working out his redemptive plan through you and in you and despite you, and you are forgiven if you belong to him. And some of you, it's not so much your guilt, but it's that you've been a victim of the evil of other people who have harmed you in real ways, guys, who have made you bleed, who have made you cry, who have had you calling out for God to be your father because he's the only one who you've ever been shown that you can count on. And I'm telling you that even their evil has all been factored in, folded into the plan of God to bring about his redemptive history upon mankind. I hate to pull out my phone, but we can know this when we look at Acts chapter 4. Maybe you guys will flip there with me for a minute. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. In this passage, John and Peter are brought before the council of the priests, and there's Caiaphas there, and Annas is there. These are some of the same people who oversaw the sham trials of Jesus. Maybe someone's got to give me a Bible because i got no internet connection up here. Got it. And after they stand before the council, right, they go then to the other believers to report on how things went. And this is what it says. It says that when they were released, John and Peter were, were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they all lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly in this city, listen close, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the, the place in which they were to gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
So what I say to you, that your evil and the evil committed against you never fell outside the square plans of God to bring about his plan of redemption and creation, I mean it. I mean it. And these guys in Acts, listen to the way that they said it. All of these people, truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do what? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All of it, every, every dot of it, falls squarely within his sovereign control and his sovereign plan. So what do we do with that? You see, the truth is, is we would like to believe that somehow God is a beggar, that he's shaking his hat, that he would really like for us to do what he'd like for us to do. He wants us to come to him. He asked, but he has no power to make it happen. That he's looking out at you and I and saying, please come, please obey. But he has, actually has no, we, we kind of castrate him and we say, to, we say to God, like you can ask, but you can't make. And that's a horrifying prospect to have a well-intentioned God who does not have the ability to carry out what he wills, where he is depending on you and I to carry out his plan and creation, and he is that easily thwarted by a world power, by a Herod or a Pontius Pilate or your dad. You see, guys, that's not our God. He has factored in the fallen nature of mankind into his redemptive plan, and every single detail is accounted for as he brings about new life. Maybe I need to let Paul say it more directly. I'm going to go here to Romans chapter 9. Let me just read this over you. I want you to listen closely, okay? I am speaking the truth in Christ, Paul writes. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God above all, blessed forever. Amen. So this first part, Paul is saying in, in Romans, he's saying, if I could become a curse in order that my kinsmen would be saved, I would, but I can't. The Israelites, the Jews, my fellow kinsmen, they won't come to Christ. They've rejected him, and it breaks my heart because these are the ones who the promises were made to, the covenants were made to them, the Christ was born from their race, uh, and he's just, he's just strick, stricken with sadness over that. In response to his own heart here, he says, But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, Paul writes, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so here Paul is now connecting this idea to Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And he's saying, God made a promise to Abraham and said that it's through your offspring that the blessing will be given. And it's the children of the blessing and the promise that are going to inherit eternal life. And the Jews have rejected him. So I guess not everybody who's born of Abraham is Israel. It must be those who are born of what? The Spirit. Of the Spirit is what Paul is teaching us, that we have misunderstood it. He says that God, before Jacob and Esau were born, chose that Jacob would be his appointed one and that Esau would be the rejected one. So what shall we say then? I mean, guys, I'm sure you're responding to that in your heart. So Paul answers you. What shall we say then? Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so then it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So when he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. And so you'll say to me then, Paul writes, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Guys, in Romans chapter 9, Paul takes what Jesus is saying here and he applies it across the whole arc of redemptive history. He says that when, that, I mean, if we really think through it, that when God flooded the earth and rescued Noah, he showed himself to be a God who chooses. That when God said, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated, he showed himself to be a God who chooses. When he says, I've hardened Pharaoh's heart, but I have ransomed my people Israel, not based on their works, but based on the blood of a lamb, he has shown himself to be a God who chooses. And when he says to us that those who have received new life in the Spirit, given as a free gift of God, he's showing himself to be a God who chooses. And he chose you. And what I've seen happen when we really start believing this is an apathy to evangelism and a mission, because if God's a God who chooses and he's in control, just let him do it. And yet he commanded us, Matthew, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And with that authority, I use it to say to you, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Why? 
In the book of Acts, when Paul is getting ready to enter into Corinth, he's terrified. There's no church there whatsoever. It's a major city. Christ is not known there, and he's scared to enter in. And the Lord says to Paul, go and keep on teaching, for I have many people in this city. Present tense, I have many people in this city, in a city that had never heard the gospel. And all the more it emboldened Paul to go in and preach the gospel because he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation for those who believe, but it's the sense of death for those who are perishing. And so we go all the more declaring the gospel in this community because we believe Jesus has many people in this city. He already knows. And those who the Father has given to him will come to him. We need only obey and proclaim the gospel and we can see him work. But before we would ever do that, first we would need to come to know and enjoy our own election, our own choosing. See, the truth is, is in every other relationship, you want to be chosen. Let me just end it there. Every other relationship, you want to be chosen. You want somebody to look upon you and to set their affection upon you, to love you in a verb-like way, to decide proactively to set their care upon you, to love you by name with a particular affection. And we don't want to let God love us that way. This is the way that the Lord loves us. And when you've really tasted it and really seen it and you've come to really understand that it had nothing to do with you, that's when you'll go. That's when you'll share a gospel to other people that has nothing to do with them either. You know, guys, we've got 14 kids on this table over here. Thank you to the one that was picked up already. And I want to make sure you understand how it works. For three weeks, those kids are off the registry because they're here. They're on that table, so no one else can adopt them. No one else can sponsor them because compassion's real, and they want actual kids matched with actual sponsors. And so those are actual kids awaiting sponsorship right now. And as long as they're on that table, they're not able to be sponsored anywhere else. For three more weeks, either Mercy's Door will adopt them or they'll go get pitched to another church somewhere for adoption. Those 14 kids need somebody to choose them, to pick up that specific card and say, in light of the fact that I have been chosen, that my God, by no merit of my own, took, had mercy on me, took compassion on me, I likewise can go in response to the gospel and set my affection proactively on another. And there's not one person in here where $38 a month would change your life in a meaningful way. It's just true. Not in a meaningful way. $38 a month is going to radically change the life of these 14 kids. And I want to celebrate together that as we understood that our God looked through time and space and set his affection on us, that we would then respond to him by setting our affection on another for some of you, you already are, are Compassion International sponsors. Can you raise your hands if you are? just wanted to thank you guys for being a part of that already. So go grab another one, okay? 
And then in GC, as we come to understand this together, guys, I want to celebrate that the Lord moves in us. He actually changes us, that we can follow Him and walk in His likeness like we were designed to do. Let's be a people who proactively set our affection upon another in response to the affection that's been set upon us. Pray about that now. Ask the Lord if you are meant to adopt another kid through sponsorship today. And then I'm going to come up and we're going to break bread together through communion. But first, let's take a time to respond in prayer.